Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome to the Soul Talk podcast. Another day, another opportunity to grow. Uh, Today we have uh, an amazing episode in in store, I'm sure. As you know, I I love uh, exploring possibilities with a wide range of folks, and today is no exception. Um, I had the opportunity to to meet my guest on uh, on her podcast, and it was, it was so much fun. We jammed and we we explored uh, different aspects of the human experience. Uh, I I had heard of her uh, as you may have um, as a race car driver. Uh, she broke barriers and set records and uh, uh, did some amazing things. And she's multi talented. Uh, but what really, I think for me, struck me when I was on her podcast was the depth of her questions. And I think that 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 showed me that uh, it really touched me in a way and it showed me that, showed me the depth of her soul and her spirit. And so uh, I'm very excited to explore and delve deep today with the amazing Danica Patrick. Danica, welcome to Soul Talk. Oh, thank you. That was such a lovely intro. I really did have such a fun time talking to you. And um, yeah, it's so good. The podcast format is so great because, you know, most of media comes in these quick snippets, you know, it's uh, one minute here, 30 seconds there, six seconds there. It's, but to have like an hour plus with someone to be able to really get into the nuances of life and thoughts and perspectives it's just really fun. And, um, and it's a, it's a very different level of um, mm-hmm. learning about someone and something. For sure. For sure. Tell me, you know, I'm curious, like, what was childhood like for you growing up? Illinois, right? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Northern Illinois and I mean, we, I grew up in a really small town, 5,000 people. And wow. it was, um, it was a very simple upbringing. Like we didn't have a super nice house at first. And um, I think my parents said they spent their last hundred dollars on a picnic table. <laughs> which I did later in life find out that picnic tables are still about a hundred, about a hundred bucks at like Home Depot. So <laughs> funny that one, that one just didn't go up too much, but, um, but they, uh, they worked really hard though. And so they excelled and it allowed me to be able to go race cars and you know because mm-hmm. that was expensive so um so but I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up just in a small town and parents that met on a blind date at a snowmobile wow. race when they were about 20 and uh I came along just a couple of years after what inspired like uh the race car driving you know passion what was that something from family parents yeah 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 for sure um a a lot of different perspectives I think my dad raced kind of his whole life growing up and um my mom and dad met on a blind date Mm -hmm. at a snowmobile race so they were set up by a sweet lady named Sue which is why my middle name is Sue um they were set up on a blind date and then they hit it off and got married and so there was racing coming from both sides, almost essentially, because they were both at the racetrack. Um, and then truly, it was my sister who wanted to race, not me. And so I just said I'd do it too. And what I've realized about myself, I don't know if this has happened to you many times, I'm, I'm sure at least mm-hmm. some in your life, but you kind of understand yourself um, from a personality perspective in certain aspects. And so I've realized as I've gotten older that I actually am not necessarily the one that always thinks of the thing to do, um, Mm. but I'm always, I'm just up for anything. Like if someone's like, you want to go skiing? I'm like, sure, 
Do you want to go to the, you know, you want to go mini putting? Sure. Do you want to <laughs> take a trip to Egypt? Sure. Like I'm, I'm very much the person that's up for anything. So there I was at 10 years old and my sister was eight and, um, well, I was up for anything. So mm. we went go-karting. Mm. I'm curious, like, when did you know this was like something you wanted to do? Like, this is serious. Like, was there a moment? Was there a knowing? Was there a... Mm. I mean, I don't know if I remember like a certain exact moment other than the fact that my very first year of racing, I was already planning to be a race car driver. I was going to go to college for engineering so that I could learn wow. how to work on my race car. So I was already thinking of things that were going to make being a race car driver my future. Um, so, yeah. So I guess I guess it kind of happened pretty quickly. And then really, I mean, it was it was very solidified by the time I was 16, because mm. when I was 16, I went to live in England and learned how to race cars. So I left home at 16, left high school. And um, that was like deep pursuit of racing. And at that point, I thought to myself, oh, boy, I better make this work because I just left high school and I'm getting mm. my GED. <laughs> mm. Mm. I'm curious about like the element of, I mean, race car driving seems, I mean, there's dangers, right? Oh, there yeah. are some real dangers. Oh, yeah. I've and been at the track when people have died many times. Yeah. So I'm curious how, how, even from a young age, you dealt with that element of things, the danger, because, because I can imagine to drive you, when you see things like that happening, that, that, that must have an impact. And yet if you drive terrified, that's also going to have an impact. So how do you navigate that element? within yourself? I don't remember. I mean, I remember being aware of danger, aware of death, aware of injury, but it wasn't something I thought about. I was far more scared. If people were like, what do you fear? I'm like failing. Mm. <laughs> I was way more scared to fail than I was to get hurt. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like from a pretty young age, especially when I was in IndyCar, I mean, this is past go-karting and racing in England and stuff like that. And, but I was 23 when I was racing IndyCars. And from that point on, I remember very, most all the time before I went out and raced, I would, I would pray, I would pray that I, like angels would come around my car and protect my car and keep me safe. And, you know, I just kind of mm -hmm. handed off. I just kind of handed it off to, to, <laughs> to a higher energy um, to protect me and kind of delegated, I guess you could say, and, mm -hmm. and just got on with it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought, like what, you know, what drives someone to be afraid of something or what, mm -hmm. what would interfere why would it interfere? I mean, the fact that I didn't think about that that much. So you didn't, you didn't really think about it. So you really didn't have fear. When yeah. You, like I when mean, you the, get in the car, there was no fear. You just, just prayed and you I just drove. Nervous. I was always nervous, uh -huh. but I was nervous for, for, for performing. I was nervous to get hurt. Um, how, how did you deal with the nervousness? Like, what did you do? What was your process for dealing with that? Um, I mean, you kind of got to ride it out. I mean, it's, there's not a lot you can really do. I, I think that you can breathe, um, yeah. take deep breaths. You can just get distracted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there was a lot of times before the race, there was distraction with driver's meetings or introductions or um, meeting people and meet and greets on the grid when you were on the, on the grid with the car. So there would be various things that would distract you. Um, but the good thing is, and I've learned this in sports since, is that it's all the before stuff that feels very nerve wracking for the athlete. But then once you're in it, then you're very focused and you're kind of really very present, essentially. You're very, mm -hmm. you're very in the moment. And so I, I really wasn't nervous once I got, once the, once they said, you know, drivers to your cars, and then you go through the process of, you know, putting on your helmet and doing your gloves and buckling your belts and all the things like you are then very distracted to some degree, but also mm -hmm. focusing in. So I've also known I've also realized that um, that it's like my focus comes very narrow as the race gets closer and closer. So mm -hmm. I've met so many people 
before a race, like on the grid or somewhere like that, like right on, because a lot of people come for race day. And um, <laughs> I had to say, nice to meet you because they'd be like, oh, I met you at wherever track. I'm like, oh, because I would not remember people very yeah, much. I yeah. just, the focus got so narrow. And I think within that narrow, narrow focus um, is really was what helped um, sort of shield from the dangers or the other things that went mm-hmm. along with it because well, it just wasn't part of the work, right? The work wasn't to be nervous to die. The work mm. was to focus, to perform. The work was to, uh, do I know all the, the protocols? Do I have an idea of the strategy? Do I have an idea? What What are we doing with the car? What am I, where are my adjustments starting in the cockpit? Like there's this, mm-hmm. all these things that help you kind of get to the core of performing that aren't about the other stuff that just doesn't help you. So I remember when I retired thinking like, wow, everyone out there is so crazy. Like I did that. That's what I remember thinking. I was like, I did that. And uh, it's, <laughs> there's so much going on. There's so mm-hmm. much and there's so much danger. And um, it's funny. I was watching the NASCAR race the other day and um, I was watching and I told my sister, I'm like, wow, this is just a lot of hours to sit on the couch. And um, <laughs> she's like, yeah. And she's like, and every time I would be nervous oh, the whole time for you. And I was like, oh, sorry, sis. She was probably more nervous, you know, for you than you were. Oh, well, definitely during. I mean, I wasn't nervous during, but before mm. I would be nervous. And then it flips. And that's the people that are like caring about you. They're nervous mm. during, mm. but before they're not nervous. So it's just mm. kind of flip flops who is dealing with the energy of it. But um, but I also think that there's a real power in the um, adrenaline and, and the need to focus. Mm. Um, so I actually felt like the more tense the situation was a lot Mm. of times, the better I performed. Interesting. So there's a way to kind of channel it. I think what's the experience like when you're in the car, like, and you're in that zone and like, I'm curious, like when you're driving where you would go, you talk about focus when you're actually moving in motion, going around, what's your internal experience? Like, well, what's going on for you? Like what happens for you? Um, I I asked Laird Hamilton a similar question. Like what happens Mm -hmm. when you're on this freaking like hundred foot wave and you know, he, he gave me his experience. I'm curious for you. What, 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 what's it like? Well, I had a monk, a Buddhist monks tell me it was like a, my own moving meditation. And it's probably true um, Mm. because really like when you're out there and you might be kind of looking in your mirrors just a little bit to kind of check for the cars around you, but generally you're just waiting for the feedback through the steering wheel, which is pretty immediate. And Mm. you're just feeling how that feels. You're, you're preparing. You're like, how am I going to get into this corner? Am I going to hold, like, am I going to drive in a little bit deeper? Am I going to take a different line? You might be thinking about that, but then once you're in it and the car takes a load, like takes a set into the corner, then you're just, you're totally present. You can't be anything else. Now, if the car is very comfortable, you can kind of just stay calm and I remember, you know, quite a few times, especially in an indie car, feeling like when it was nice and peaceful and the car felt good, like I reminded myself it's not easy. This isn't easy. Like anything can happen at any very mm. mo- any given moment. And so I would be like just kind of grateful that it was an easy experience I was having, but remind myself to stay very focused because mm. it doesn't take much for it to tip over the edge or the car to change and need to be ready for that. Could have stay humble in that moment. Yeah, yeah, you do. You really do. And um, and so I I felt like there's a little bit of sort of thinking ahead to some degree or being proactive with how the car is feeling. And so say if the car is like not turning so well, you think, okay, where am I going to go to kind of chase this? Or what am I going to do with my adjustments in the car to chase this? So you might be sort of preemptively striking at sort of the way that the car is going to change over the Mm -hmm. run. But, um, but it, but there's a lot of time on track where it's just very, very present and feeling, getting the feedback from the car and, and dealing with that. And I, and I wonder, and I wonder what you Mm. think about this just as a curiosity, (laughs) but I, I've wondered since, you know, I've retired or at the very end of my career, how much of what's going on on track is actually intuitive as opposed to a certain like feedback we're actually getting. Like, I wonder how much 
just because when we're dealing with that kind of speed and then we've got like, mm. actually this monk told me I should write a book called the speed of consciousness. Um, mm. called it a movie. He was a very, it's really, really great monk. Um, but I wonder just, you know, in this sort of, we're in this time space reality, but when you get into the car mm-hmm. and I learned this, it's a funny example, but I learned this because I was sick one time at the track and I took NyQuil and I could took DayQuil in the morning and I took it before I ate. And then by the time I ate and stood up, I was like, whoa, I feel drunk right now. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I got to go drive at Martinsville. It's this flat half mile track. It's like over and over and over again, accelerate, decelerate corner after corner, you know, very, very short laps. And I remember thinking, oh shoot. And I got out there and I was fast. So you drove. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No problem. I didn't even feel it at all. And I was like, wow, we are wow. just not in a we're not in a beta. We're not even in a beta mm-hmm. brainwave state. I feel like when we're in the car, mm-hmm. we're in some other state. Maybe mm-hmm. it's gamma. Maybe it's mm-hmm. maybe it's high beta. I don't know. But it's some different brain state that you don't. I don't think you're really operating in this like general realm of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And so I wonder just intuitively if you feel that, because I really wondered that after I was done, I was like, because there were so many times where I knew how the car was feeling and you knew how the car was feeling. Yeah. And I, I knew it and I don't know. And I, and it wouldn't show that on the data. Like it wasn't like you could see it on the speed or the brake or the lateral or any of those sort of um, sensors that we have. I just always remember thinking, do you want me to go crash to show you it's loose? Or do you want to just trust me that it's loose? And um, this is before you start. Was this before you started driving? No, no. This is kind of like in my IndyCar IndyCar career. I was I was sort of like sort of realizing at least that um, I didn't have to make the car slide to know what it was doing. And then at the end of my career, I wondered how much is possibly Mm -hmm. intuitive. And is it yeah, coming? When, when I say before you, like before you got in the car to drive the car, you could feel it, or or, or was it more just like while you were driving? While you were driving. While you, you were just, driving. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know how you just kind of like have like a clairnosis sort of like yeah. awareness, you, like you, you maybe tapping in, knowing. tapping into the, the the energy of the car as well. Right, and maybe yeah. I was just ahead of it for us. Like maybe you're just a you're intuitively mm-hmm. just ahead of it. You know, I don't know. It's just a thought I had, but I know wow. you can kind of go deep on those things. Wow. I just I'm, I'm curious, connected to that also, like this, this, like when you're in that zone, you the race stops, you come out of that. Mm-hmm. How does that integrate into regular life? Because you're obviously not, I don't think, living that way, right? You could, like, were there challenges with that? Were there any, how does that? everything's pretty relative. Like when you're mm. out there and everybody's doing 220, you're doing 220. Mm. You get on the road at home. You always want to be a little faster than everyone. So you <laughs> driving down the road and everybody's driving 80 and you're driving 85, you know, like, sure. it's pretty yeah. relative, yeah. but I will say that, uh, I don't know. But it's, because, because, you know, sometimes folks talk about like the performers, you know, like I have a client who's a performer and he gets on stage and he has this high, then he comes back to life and life just feels like, blah and and so always wanting to like be in that heightened moment of experience did you have any of that had in terms of normal normal everyday living okay well there's another part i just thought of but i think one of them for me that i feel and i don't know if this is because of the job and sort of cultivating speed in all ways but like i get like in normal life it feels like people drive slow people think slow Sometimes people, you know, process slow, like I do everything fast. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a driver thing or not, to be honest, but I don't think it is, but you know, I don't know. I generally feel like things mm-hmm. happen pretty slow, but I'm pretty sure for about every race car driver, they could probably drive down the road and think that most people suck at driving. <laughs> um, and then um, as far as like the adrenaline I mean, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. someone that does it for the thrill of speed or anything like that. I don't love, love the danger. I didn't like it actually, but I did find out once I retired that it's being, putting myself in a position to reach a new level of sort of like bravery 
that I loved. Like I loved being on the edge of like, Ooh, can I do this? Right. Mm. Like in the car, it's all the time. You're on the edge. You're like, can I get in that hard? Can I get on the throttle this early? Can I carry mm. this much speed? Um, can I go flat out through one and two this time? Like there's, you know, you're always pushing that. And I realized after I retired that it's actually being in that, in that in-between state of comfort and, and total kind of like disaster that I really, really like it. Mm. I really thrive in that. So when I retired, it's like, it doesn't have to come in, a, in an, an actual physical danger way. Like it doesn't need to be yeah. something like, I mean, yes, I did jump out of a helicopter and, wow. you know, with Bear grills on his show and rappel across canyons, hundreds of feet in the air. Mm -hmm. And I do like enjoy putting myself in that position. But it can also be preparing for an interview and, mm -hmm. you know, respecting someone so deeply that you want to do a good job and you want to make sure you're prepared. And it can come from, um, you know, a new job. So take, for instance, you know, going and doing F1 broadcasting. It's like, OK, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not as familiar with this as as so many others. But like, let me prepare. Let me get ready. Let me do this. So mm -hmm. I, I just find other ways to do it now. And it doesn't need to come in a physical danger, it just needs to come in an emotional danger. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned preparation a few times, so that sounds like, like one way I'm hearing like preparation is important. You know, like many of us were not prepared, mm -hmm. and and so like like would you say preparation is 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 an element of of dealing with the unknown? Well, I think we can. I think preparation is a way of dealing with the result for me because when you're prepared whatever happens you knew you did everything you could so you can't be mad at yourself but say you prepare like crap you didn't do anything you didn't think about it you didn't you didn't put thought to it you didn't put time to it and then you go out and you fail it's like that's where you start to loathe yourself that's where you start to have really really negative um self-talk but if you do everything you can to prepare for something to the best of your ability, then you go and do it. And if you succeed, now you have a positive affirmation for doing the preparation and the work and, and, and the process. And if you fail, well, you know, you tried really hard. Like, you know, you did it all. So like, what is it that I need to do now? Is it that this isn't my thing? That could be it. Is it that I need to try again? Like, you know, is that my first rodeo? Because like if, if, if everyone were judged on their first rodeo, then it'd probably all be failures. So, you know, even your second rodeo, right? That seems like a low amount of rodeos. So, you know, I think that preparing is, is for me more about dealing with the result than it is about dealing with the actual challenge. Mm -hmm. And what about the pressure? Like pressure of, and I think, I think a lot of us have a hard time handling pressure, like the pressure of success, even like, oh, I've succeeded. And now people have these expectations and in, in the public eye. And, 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 and so did you feel pressure? How did you handle the feeling of pressure if you felt it? Um, <laughs> not really, like, it's a weird thing. And, 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 and also because I feel like to some degree, I kept getting asked, I kept getting asked about carrying sort of like the female torch kind of thing about mm -hmm. woman out there. And, um, I, I just, uh, I just didn't like, you just didn't feel the pressure feel. I mean, I, I felt like it was all about how much pressure I was putting on myself to perform. It actually was probably more than what anyone could have done as far as pressure on the outside. Mm -hmm. I always felt like I always felt like what was coming at me from the outside versus what was in here, the real pressure of like go win or you should be in the top 10 today or you should be in the top five or you should be on the front row for qualifying or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It was always really hopeful. It was always much more about, you know, wanting to see me do well but it wasn't like if you don't do this you don't get to keep going mm. or if you don't do this i won't cheer for you anymore it wasn't like that it never mm. felt super conditional it was always just very hopeful mm. my pressure that i put on myself was always more mm. Mm. which is probably why i was pissed off so often always so grumpy especially early in my career 
walking yeah, around awesome. just like a, with a mm, like super mad face and very unapproachable. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, what about how do you deal with losing? Mm. Or not, or not, or not, or, or yeah, the, the sense being, that you like that's the, that's the purpose of preparation is like being able to deal with the loss, being able to deal mm. with failing or not doing well. You know, without the preparation, then you are just beating, you're going to beat yourself up mm-hmm. and that will wear on you because mm-hmm. um, you're with yourself all day, every day. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was someone else doing it, you get to walk away or drive away from them or fly away from them, but it's you. So um, a lot of times I sort of the thing that crossed my mind was, you know, if you want the same result, keep doing what you're doing kind of thing. Like, OK, OK, no, I don't. So what can I do different? And so there were lots of times in my career, I would sort of take a different approach to various different aspects of things. Um, But, you know, there's so many moving targets and Mm -hmm. like elements to racing. I think that's probably what keeps us sane versus Mm -hmm. some other sports where it's just you and the stick or you and the club or you and the you and the racket or you and the ball Mm -hmm. is that we've got pit crews, cars, engines, tires. spotters strategies like there's so many elements that you know there's always something you could probably blame Mm -hmm. now there's definitely always something you could blame maybe a couple of things Mm -hmm. so i feel like that sort of is like was a very very much a safety net within racing as opposed to a lot of other sports Mm -hmm. um i sometimes wonder how I would have done in another sport if I had the mm-hmm. same talent in a sport that didn't have so many elements, if it was mm-hmm. just me in the racket or me in the ball or me in the whatever. I really wonder because I have like a pretty laser focus and I have, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I'm like overly confident by any means, but I have a very, fo- a very good focus mm-hmm. and attention and, and execution, like mm-hmm. consistent execution. Part of something that my dad would always get mad at me about was, that I would just like, wouldn't try anything different. It was the same damn lap time, every lap and try something different. It's like, I was really good at repeating. I was really good at hitting my marks. I was really good at doing the same things. So that focus of doing that same thing, I wonder how that could have played into other sports. Or if we took my talent, put it in another sport, would I have been nothing at all? Like, was Mm -hmm. I really average? Did it, was it being a girl that really catapulted me? Was it was that the thing, you know, was it not my talent? Was it actually all the other things that go around it that are so necessary within the sport to get out there and turn the wheels? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We'll never know. But <laughs> sometimes wonder that, like, how would it have translated in a, in a, in a sport? In a different. Less elements. For someone, they're listening and going, okay, laser focus. She's laser focused. She's just that way. She's just as consistent. She's just, that's just her. Mm-hmm. And they might be feeling the sense that they really struggle with focus and being lazy and, and finding that they, they, they even know what they want to do, but they may be finding it hard to motivate and inspire themselves to like follow through. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking this Danica, she's, she's just born that way. Like I'm not born that way. She just gifted at focus and, and, and they're struggling with that element. I'm curious what advice you could give that person who's finding the the difficulty in being yeah. inspired, and they're, and, and, and they're just kind of their their thing is ah she's born that way that's their that's their and I think there's some truth to that actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'll say first and foremost is you have to figure out what suits you, right? What 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 fits your likes, your personality, your traits, all those things. So I took a genetic test um, last year. And then within this DNA genetic testing, it showed very much how I was capable of doing the job that I was doing. Mm. Meaning when I focus on something, I'm kind of like, like a, like a mouse after the cheese. Like I just keep going. Like I'm, I have a very, I almost get like addicted to sort Mm -hmm. of figuring something out or going down the rabbit hole all the way. So I remember when I was having the genetic testing read to me, he was like, you know, it makes perfect sense how you did the job you did because (laughs) you just have this ability to like hone in on something and keep going. And, um, and so, so, so again, there's, there's probably, 
to some degree, some of that. He also identified that I had the most amount of genetic um, dopamine receptors. So, so for someone that is maybe has a low amount, let's say, they might be more affected by the media. They might be more affected by the booing fans. They might be more affected Mm -hmm. by a negative result. They might be more affected by how they have to handle something to get ahead. Whatever that scenario is, they might not be able to deal with that as well. So for me, I was like, I, it's probably why whenever somebody asks something, if I want to do it, it's like, you want to go racing? I'm like, sure. Like (laughs) my my dopamine hits there. It's right there. It's like, great. Everything's great. Everything is going to work out. Mm. Um, So I think those are a couple of things that possibly played into my ability to do what I was doing. Um, But I also believe in mindset, literally the book mindset of having a fixed, fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And so you can get better at anything. And so, you know, getting attached to the process as opposed Mm. to the result is really important. It's also very important for parents to know for their children. It's very important to encourage the process and the work that someone puts in and the effort and the time as opposed to how they actually do. Because you can also have a kid that does really well and doesn't study at all. And then as soon as adversity shows up in their life, they don't know how to try. They don't know how to practice. They don't know how to, they don't know how to lose yet. Mm. And so, um, so I think that, you know, putting the time and effort in uh, is important, but I, but I think back to the very, very first thing I said about this is that you have to actually identify if someone's struggling, let's say to focus or do whatever it is that they're doing, you got to answer the hard question. Is this actually something you really love doing? Yeah. Because I don't think that the universe puts us in positions of truly being in, in, in love and in passion and, you know, Dharma with something, if it's not really what we're supposed to be doing. And if it is, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. yes, of course, there's always going to be challenges, but it's going to be quite natural, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, because it suits you on so many levels, because it's what you're supposed to be doing. Otherwise you're going to be miserable. So it's like, Mm -hmm. Are you really actually happy yeah, with what yeah. you're doing? Yeah. Scary to question sometimes, you know? Yeah. Are you fighting through something just because you're too afraid to make a change? Are you fighting through it because this is an expectation level put on you by family or society or a partner or something like that? You know, I think those are the real, real questions to ask if you're in, an, in a situation where you are really struggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. In terms of, um, and then there's always just therapy, of course. Yeah, <laughs> there's always just therapy. There's always therapy for you know what happened to you when you were a kid, and yeah. you know this is probably more your area of expertise. Like, yeah. how did you turn out the way you did, yeah. and why is it that you have the patterns that you do? Mm-hmm. I think some people definitely develop self-destructive patterns and um, and uh, negative negative routines and patterns that um, that really make life hard for them. So. Mm-hmm. Like I always recommend therapy and I always recommend like inner child work and going into the, going into the deep, deep past and figuring out what developed your programming. Mm -hmm. Awesome. (laughs) When, when did you know, like it was time to retire and how was that for you? Because I think many times we have an identity, we do something, we do it well, maybe we succeed and we keep doing it and it becomes our identity and it becomes hard to like, let that go. And it, it can be a source of suffering, you know, to just keep doing what you're doing, even though either it's, it's, it's time, it's no longer working. It's just your soul has evolved to a different place and we need to let go. And so I'm curious, like, how did you know, how did you make that decision? And how was the process of letting go of an entire identity and phase of your life? Yeah. Um, I think easier for me than for many. I, I'm not going to say like, or, or at least like easier for me than easier than you'd think. Maybe mm. this may be the right way to describe it. Tell me. I go back to the way that my agent would describe me to sponsors when he would talk to them. And he would say that racing is what she does, but it's not who she is. Mm. And so in this lovely paradoxical mm. reality that we live in, where we can't see ourselves clearly, um, yet we seem we can see other people. We actually, well, we actually, I feel like we can see other people, yes, but we see ourselves through other people. Mm. 
it's sort of a mirror happening all around us. And so I didn't really know this about myself. You know, I didn't really know that I almost, I almost remember when he had that sort of mm. saying for me, I almost remember being a little offended, like, like, okay, whatever. If that's what works, mm-hmm. if that's what gets, if that's what's interesting to the sponsors, fine. But it ended up being really true. And so I loved aspects of racing, but it wasn't actually racing. Mm. Like I don't go do it for fun now. I don't go to the racetrack and I don't go driving any car I can for fun. I'm not hanging out watching races. Mm. I do races now for broadcasting and I enjoy that. And I like talking to people and asking questions and analyzing things and um, sharing the knowledge and experience that I gained over my career of 27 years. Um, but I, I, it's not, it's not the thing for me. Like it's mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, it was, it was fairly straightforward to transition, which is probably also because I had a bunch of other stuff going on. Like I was already making wine at that point. I had a clothing line for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I was already doing speaking engagements. So like I had other work to do and other things to do. So a lot of people, when they're doing what they're doing, they don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't have time. Maybe they don't have an interest. Maybe they don't have an awareness for even other things that they like doing, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it, if it is, if it is truly what you love and your passion, then I also think that as the transition happens and, 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 and occurs and you step into a less prominent role with it, your passion and love for the thing that you're doing still carries on. And you probably still do mm-hmm. it to some degree. You might still play around. You might still show up at the, you know, the racetrack, you might still show up at doing, helping out with whatever it is that you do. Mm. Um, I think you, I don't think it just dies. And so I don't think you, you, you die. I think you just, yeah. just shift, shift so form. Yeah. you just shift a little bit, but for me, it felt, it felt fine. It actually was really exciting. I was ready. Wow. So, and I think that if I'm using sort of, how, like and, yeah, and how did you know you were ready? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to explain was that, um, I was not really resonating with the environment anymore, to be honest. I probably had my biggest sort of growth, like my growth spiritually started when I probably 2015. Mm. And I, I remember having a really emotional conversation with one of my best friends. And I said to her, I said that like, I don't really love racing. And she was like, you know, this is before while I was still racing. God, that might have even been like 2015. It might have been a few years before. Mm. I think I retired about three years after, but mm. I had told her that. And um, and so I didn't tell anyone else that. And the years went by. It's not that I I just loved aspects of racing. So it always made me feel like kind of a cheater when I would say that. Mm. But um, but I I loved aspects of it. And so once those aspects sort of dissipated, which really for me was about the hope of doing better next year, the, 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 the optimism, the, you know, just my ability to continue to grow and improve and, and finish better and have better results. Once I felt like that wasn't part of what was Mm. going to be my reality, then that sort of process that, that process that I loved, um, it, once that was gone, it, it felt like that really wasn't calling me. And at the same time, I, as I grew spiritually, I started to shift my own energy and the environment just didn't feel Mm. good anymore. Like it was way more miserable and it was like a lot more, I mean, it makes me seem like I'm like a wimp, but it was more like cutthroat and like, you had to be an asshole to do Mm. well. And just, it just wasn't me. Like, I, I mean, trust me, I can be a little tough, but, Mm -hmm. um, but where I feel like where it's appropriate. And so I just felt like, you know, there was just so much undercutting and so much, yeah, it just wasn't just, you know, certain people I was around just weren't my vibe of like Mm -hmm. living. Mm -hmm. And it just like, I just kind of grew out of it. Mm -hmm. So evolution, the signs and yeah, yeah, evolution. evolution. Yeah, just wasn't. And so then I just really was left to this sort of like perspective of the difference between quitting and letting go. And Mm. so I, I didn't quit. I was like, okay, I'm going to leave this up to like the universe aligning shit, getting this done. And I tried a little, but I didn't go full court press. I wasn't going to compromise on anything 
that I thought was going to help me sort of have a, you know, be able to be on that trajectory of a better year the next year. I was like, look, these are the rules of engagement. And, um, and when things just didn't come together with teams and sponsors and things like that, I just went, it's time. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Takes courage because I think many times we 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 keep holding on, you know, and keep holding on and keep holding on. So, yeah. yeah. Why do you think people do that? Why do you think people hold on? Well, I, I think in many ways we have a, a a certain identity that's attached to that version of us that we hold on to, and so that egoic sense of self that identifies so deeply with this is who I am versus what I do. Right? This is this is all of who I am, and so I think that then then letting go of doing that thing becomes a sense of or a feeling of I am dying. And mm-hmm. so ego then resists letting go, even though we know we should and we need to, and that everything in the universe is pointing to that, the team, the sponsors or whatever, uh, ego holds on, you know, because I think, I think there is a seeking to reinforce its existence and be safe and be in control and get validation. And that's how we've learned. And so I think it can be scary, you know, to find the courage to let go. So it's, it's awesome that you did. Uh, yeah, when you did. And, and I think too, it's like the universe. I really believe in this that you know it's not just always going to send you your signs in the most simple like, oh, the sponsor didn't come. Maybe it's you get sick. Maybe you mm-hmm. get hurt. Maybe you like. Maybe your focus gets really pulled. Like there's all kinds of ways that you know the universe mm-hmm. shows up to say this isn't in alignment anymore. And so what you always hope to do is to be able to gracefully exit before life has to get too difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. How did your spiritual path start? I'm curious. Was there an event? Was there something that happened? Was it gradual? Was there a moment? Both. All of those things. Yeah. There's moments, but there's kind of gradual and there's a, so I guess it probably started mostly I mean it's really been my whole life right like I think back to my life as I'm growing older now and I'm like oh yeah I was totally always into Egypt or like Mm. oh wow I've always been into astrology or you know oh wow I've always been I've always been interested I've always wanted to go to a yoga retreat you know like Mm. like just these are things that I wanted to do when I was a teenager and um and so it was probably 2015 where it really kicked off and it was a trip to um a bunch of girls we I live in Arizona and we went up to Flagstaff and Sedona area, but mostly Sedona to um, take our little girls trip for the year. And, um, you know, it was just like one of those trips where we were just like in the mystery. We were just enjoying the mystery. There was, you know, we were taking pictures and we were like, oh my God, there's orbs in the picture. I mean, I know mm-hmm. they're lens flares, but we were in the mystery. <laughs> and it felt fun. And, um, And so we went and did like a vortex tour and we went to a labyrinth and, you know, we were just doing doing it. You were doing it. Psychic readings. And, you know, look, I've had psychic readings since I was like 18. So I I love them. I'm interested. I haven't, I didn't have that many from 18 to like when I was in my, I guess would have been early thirties. But that's probably where it really started was on that trip and just kind of being in the mystery. And then it probably really catapulted. Then it kind of was just me like, interested in watching YouTube videos about various different things and learning about energy and sound and all Mm -hmm. kinds of weird spiritual words I hadn't really heard before and just kind of diving in. And then in 17, the beginning of 17, I went with a friend to um, Tulum and Mm -hmm. I had like a very, very mystical experience on the beach with a dog and just transported for, for what, a tenth of a second, a minute, you know, when you're in those other sort of realms and realities, I don't know how really long it was, but I got a decent amount of information in that reality. And in that, in that moment. And it was just that it was like this energy shaft that sort of went up from where I was at over the ocean, like diagonally. And it was just this Mm -hmm. awareness of like, like, it's like, you're loved. You are, it's all love. That's all it is. And no matter if you've ever prayed before, ever had thought of a higher power, ever, ever looked beyond yourself for anything at any point, or even if you take a break, it doesn't matter. It's all love. You're always loved. Mm-hmm. And that there's no need for forgiveness because there was never a judgment in the first yeah. place. Yeah, that's deep. Mm. And it was, I mean, I was, I don't, I wasn't looking at anything. Like it was a total transport. You this, know? Just ha- this just happened. 
it just happened. I mean, if I'm going into the longer version of the story, basically it was that happened on day four on day one, we met this dog on the beach and there was a bunch of dogs on the beach, but this one in particular, and I named it the first day, Lucy. And, um, and then, you know, as time would go on, it was this weird energy dynamic where if I wanted to see Lucy, that was the name I gave her, um, she wouldn't show up. But if I let go and not just the, oh, well, and then you're like looking out of the corner. Of <laughs> let go in order to, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But the real one where you're like, it's okay, it's fine. Like, okay, let's go do something else. Or the dog is probably, when you truly energetically let go and then yeah. the dog would just appear. Wow. For real. You would so, see it. it, would, it, would, it and would then all of a sudden, like, it would just be there. Like, you'd sit down and the dog would be there. And you're like, oh, well, there it is. <laughs> and, um, then we went to Coba to um, some Mayan yeah. ruins. And, and there was some stray dogs walking around. And I was, like, telling my friend, I was like, I feel like I was definitely a dog in another life. And mm -hmm. I was like, maybe I was a stray dog. And I was like, I feel like that dog Lucy is me. And mm -hmm. I remember saying that. And I had finished reading a book before I left. And I always finish books like right on time when I'm supposed to. And I finished a book called Meet Your Soul. And so wow, I hadn't met my soul, but I read this book called Meet Your Soul. And uh, and I just before that trip. And anyway, um, so I still hadn't put it all together. I just said this dog, Lucy, is me, which is just a weird thing to say. And so then that day four, my friend and I, we went to a yoga yoga um, class that was three and a half hours long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, wow. I that's, learned, a, that's a long, that's a long class. <laughs> yeah. I learned later because I actually rented this guy, Raphael Shaman's house. I remember his name vividly. Um, I actually rented his house many years later for a couple of weeks in Tulum and found out, I mean, I found out after I rented it, oh my God, are you, did you teach at yoga shala? But he, I learned afterwards, he set the chi field in the room. Like he like really very like a lot of integrity with his practice. And so my, I told him, I was like, what was that sort of misty like look in the room? And he was like, oh, you noticed that? And I was mm. like, yeah, I like kept trying to blink and it was still there. And he's like, oh yeah, he's like, yeah. And I set the chi field before everyone gets there. And anyway, so we did that. Then we had a, a chakra balancing mas massage after that. And then mm. anyway, found our way to the beach in the afternoon. And I had told my friend, hey, I'm going to go to another area of the beach just so we don't sit on the same bed every day and maybe go <laughs> sunlight because it's the afternoon now. So I walk over, no sunlight, no sunlight, no sunlight, get all the way back, back on the same bed. As soon as I sit down, the dog shows up, boom, and then it happens. And as soon as I got done, I was bawling for like 45 minutes. Wow. And I'm not a crier. Like you don't know me that well, but if anyone else were like, you were bawling for 45 minutes, like, I just don't cry for things. It just, I just, it just doesn't hit me like that. And mm, so mm. I cried for like 45 minutes. And then finally my friend came down and as she walked up, I started bawling again. I'm like, no, no, no it's okay. I, I met mm. my soul, like Lucy, <laughs> my soul. Um, and so, I mean, when you have like truly mystical experiences mm. like that, like, how do you come back? How do you come back mm. from that? You know? Mm. And so that was in 17. And then that was the last full year of my career as well. Mm. And um and then, I mean, I've just been deep on the journey ever since. Mm. And um, yeah, I actually, I'll share this there. Um, yeah. I'm planning a trip to Europe in the summer. And uh, I have had this dream since I sort of not dream literal, but like I've had this idea uh, where I want to get some of the witchiest women I know together and to go do a trip and just like, I just, I just feel like it would be super powerful. Magical. Go to Glastonbury. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we're planning on Italy right now. But anyway, four out of the five girls that I like have on this list are planning on going on this trip. So I was like, oh my God, you guys, it's happening. Wow. And, um, so I've just been, I've just been so on the journey, whether it's through, mm. you know, psychics or um, spiritual trips or going to Egypt, um, um, reading really good books. Mm. Um exploring plant medicine, uh, ceremonies. I mean, I'm just, mm. I just really at the core of it. I just want to know the truth. Mm. I want to know the truth about who I am, where we came from, what's mm. going on. What mm. is this reality? Mm. So yeah, it's is, cool. Is there, I, I, I have two more questions for you, but is there, is there like in your, let's say last five, five, six, seven years of like intensive spiritual mm. exploration, 
is there anything, obviously this Lucy experience is profound and Tulum is, yeah. is, is a magical multi-dimensional vortex where people think like Tulum is, oh, the beach and what you see. And, you know, it's really like that the portal into the invisible Tulum where things are really happening. So it's, it's like, yeah. you went through something for sure. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm curious, like on the path, um, has, has, you know, aside from that, has there been anything else that has been, you would say the, this is the greatest lesson or t- teaching that you yeah. have received by being on the spiritual <laughs> yeah. path, like an awareness, like yeah. a nature of reality, like shit, I didn't know this. And this has yeah. arisen yeah. in my consciousness. Um, probably my lesson in ayahuasca. Um, mm. My first night sitting, I only sat for two nights and the second one, I can't really say it was a full night. Mm. That was when the apocalypse happened and the mm. borders were shutting down everywhere in 2020 and had to go home in the middle of the night, left ceremony mm. in the middle of it. So wow. anyway, it was a pretty dramatic mm. situation. But night one, my lesson was um, that, and that took a while. It's still taking a while. I'm still not all the way there, I don't think, because I still know there's, I'm still aware of that lesson. But mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, being shown, this wasn't something the shamans told me, this wasn't you know, oh, you were a medicine woman in another life, or you lived in Egypt and you did this, like those stories came, but this was my vision. This was my experience. And that was that um, I have this idea of a relationship, like a, like a, a, a romantic relationship being so perfect and symbiotic mm-hmm. and balanced and reciprocal. And, and, and that other person will essentially kind of you know, click in and complete you in some way. And I just imagined that that would, that would be out there. And the vision that I got was that I was not, I was going to have to develop that relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. And it didn't mean that I wasn't going to get that thing. I saw it, but that is second. First is that I developed the relationship with myself that perfect relationship, that perfect sort of sinking. And I still have like very important Mm. things come through even in the last month or two that pertain to that development. Mm. And so that was three years ago almost. And so, you know, yeah, plant medicine isn't something that you have to go do a ton of to figure it out. Like I'm still integrating night one. Wow. And so that was just a really deep vision. And I, I bawled and I cried and I had to mourn Mm -hmm. like the idealization of this reality that I wanted for a different one that I had absolutely no idea how to get absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea. Mm -hmm. And it's only really, I'd say in the last like six months, even of my life that I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's how you do it. Like, okay all right, I see. And, um, so I, 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 I think that that has been another very, very big lesson that came, um, in ceremony that, um, yeah, super, super powerful. Yeah. I think that's deep. I think many times the idealization of relationship, the idealization of who we think we want to be with even can limit and get in the way of this grace and infinite intelligence and the divine, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know that's how it was for me. Really? It's, it's, Do you have a story? In a nutshell, yeah, yeah. You know, like I had all these ideas of, in, I was in Phoenix. I was living in Phoenix for like a year and I was with this 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 woman in Phoenix and it, I, I was sure, like everything fit my idealized, like I saw her in the stars and, you know, the moon and my mother seemed to download and bring her to me and it was this whole sort of idea. It happened in exactly the way I thought it was going to happen. That was just the gist of it. It fit my identity. Let's put it that way. My ego identity. And there was love. And in a nutshell, it lasted six months. And everything I thought was, wasn't. And that was so profoundly humbling. Mm -hmm. And shall we say ego, I don't say destroying, but cracking. You know, it was like a medicine journey without being on medicine. And, and, And it was like God the divine showing me like, you don't know shit about anything. You don't know anything about anything. And so all that's left to do is surrender and let total go 
of everything you think you know about love, about relationship, about your list, about who you think. And that's when I was just felt like I was brought to my niece and I just said, I don't know. And uh, long story short, but I was, I was guided one day uh, to go to Brazil and just literally go to Brazil. Boom. No idea why. Just, and, and, uh, that's where I met my, my wife in Brazil. And uh, it was didn't happen how I thought, didn't happen the way I thought. And like nothing was like how I thought it was going to happen. And yet she was everything and more than I could have actually written and planned, but not on not on paper, but at soul level. And and you didn't know you was, needed the things that she offered you. I had no idea. And I had no, I had a feeling that, mm, but I didn't think because on <laughs> it didn't fit my ego identity, but that that um, clicking in that you talked about is exactly what happened because it just it fits. Not that there's not some you know no one no, no one's perfect either way, but 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 there's something that just complement. There was a complementary soul something that just was there, but I didn't try to make it, and it wasn't what my ego thought. But it ended up being better. And that was what was so humbling, where everything I thought was, wasn't. Everything I thought wasn't, was. And, and so it's, it's a humbling thing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, you know, for your own realization in that. Well, I have to say, too, just for, you know, obviously I explained a, I explained a plant ceremony, a plant medicine ceremony, but, and it showed me something. But all mm -hmm. of my parts of the process have been mm -hmm. sober, right? It was sort mm -hmm. of like a breakup showing me that I didn't yep. like, it was a couple of breakups showing me that, you know, I wanted to be chosen. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be choosing myself. Oh shit. That's the lesson. Like it's yep. in these sober experiences of emotional challenge where you learn the lessons. It's not like going and doing yep. plant medicine again and sitting and all of a sudden mm -hmm. thinking that like some, you're going to get dropped. It's going to come challenge. Mm -hmm. Like the, the harder the road, the, the deeper you're going to expand, right? Like mm -hmm. I've realized that the more challenging and sad and the more sadness I have, the more joy I find too. It's like, it's this unfortunate dichotomy of like, when you break open this way, you also break open this way. Mm -hmm. And I've realized that it's, it's when you're in it, it's being in it. And the only way to the other side is through. It's and if true. you can yeah. just stay with it, um, as everyone that gets to this point and myself included where it's hard and you just think, Oh, like I always remind them. I'm like, you're almost there. Mm -hmm. Like it took your whole life for you to get here, mm -hmm. your whole life for you to get to this lesson yeah. and you're right there. And yep, it's bad. And it's actually probably going to get worse still, but you're not that far away. Like you don't sit in the fire for a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. You don't, mm -hmm. you sit in the fire and it's really, really hard. It's the hardest part. And there's usually a couple levels of that fire. <laughs> then once you get the other side, you're like, oh, wow, that was six months of challenge or that was a year or whatever. But it took my entire life to get there. Mm -hmm. So I just try and remind people that when it's hard, you're almost there. Yeah. And, and sometimes that fire is like the necessary marination. You know, oh, yeah. we've been cooked by the cosmic chef and, and marinated to be prepared. Like I think, wow, what if Mandela didn't spend 27 years in prison? Like would he have would he have developed the ripeness, the depth of soul force, the I mean, the depths of that he must have gone to to question himself and forgive and meditate. Like that doesn't happen in two and a half days, a two and a half day weekend. So know? true. Yeah. I mean, that there is so much time for contemplation. And, you know, I, I will say that I think this plays into something that I feel is been the most important thing for me for mm. growth and, 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 and coming to that really challenging understanding of who I am, which is mm. a lot harder to understand who we are than we think. And that's being alone. Like it's having, being alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's having alone time. It's being able to know who you are so that you have discernment when you get into interaction with other people, whether it's in a relationship or with friends or family you've got to orient with you and you can only do that if you're alone. If you've never done it before, you got to be alone. You don't know otherwise, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It takes courage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I acknowledge you. Mandela had a lot of time to be alone. 
it, it takes courage to drive a car fast around, you know, around. But I think, you know, as I hear you talk, it takes a lot of courage to like question yourself and go to these depths. So just yeah. uh, really acknowledge you, you know, have so much respect for just who you are and uh, the, 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 the intensity and focus of your soul, like just questioning and evolving. I think that's, that's what it's about to me. That's what life is about. So thank you for coming on. Last question. Um, you've shared a lot. But if there were, let's, if you were to reflect on your life and your experiences, if there were like three, three main key wisdoms that you say, okay, this is like the three key lessons from my life. And if you could only pass these three key life lessons to like the next generation, you know, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, that you feel, okay, these three learnings would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most. And you were to like gift these to the next generation things you've learned. I'm curious what the three main okay. life lessons would be. All right. Um, these aren't going to be in order. They're going to come to however they come to mind. Yeah. <clears throat> the first one I would say is accountability. It's taking account, being accountable for your actions, mm -hmm. um, to be able to ask yourself in every situation, like what's my part in this? Um, and it's okay to do it on the positive stuff too, right? We got to yeah. give ourselves credit for all of it, but especially on the negative, like what's my part in this, you know? I spent a lot of my life thinking everything was everybody else's fault, not mine. And the most powerful thing you can do is put that into your own hands and go, what's my mm -hmm. part in this? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's that you don't participate in that same thing anymore. Maybe it's not with those same people anymore, whatever it is. Um, so accountability. Uh, another lesson would be this one, of course, I learned quite young was to um, whatever it is that's different about you is actually what makes you valuable and unique. Mm. And the more you can stand in your own truth and what that uniqueness is, the more easily you're going to be able to find not only your people, your tribe, your friends, your relationships, but also your work and nice. what makes you the most happy. Because if you're trying to be the next somebody else, you'll only fail mm. because you'll never be them because that was them right? If usually somebody that achieves greatness is someone that really figured it, like found their thing. So finding out what it is that's unique and different about you. And instead of running from it and hiding from it, it's embracing it. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, a third. Accountability, uniqueness. Probably to question everything. <laughs> to kind of be your own investigator with everything mm. question it question you know institutions question religions question um you know why you're participating in a in a ritual or practice like mm -hmm. these questions why because so many things become robotic and oh there's also so much propaganda and there's so much programming out there that you have to get vigilant for yourself yeah. So that you can, again, get closer to who you are with that sort of discernment of like, what's from what's right for me and what's not. And why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. Okay, I get it. Yep, cool. I'm good with that. Or like, that doesn't make any sense for me. Mm -hmm. um, so question everything. It's just healthy. It's just healthy mm -hmm. to question everything. Question everything I've said. Mm -hmm. Question everything, right? That's just, you know, that's just, I think, a, a really good rule of thumb. So I'd say those are the things. Accountability. The uniqueness and, and find your find what's making you what makes you unique awesome folks you heard it the three keys from danica patrick uh, i have loved the conversation so thank you for just just sharing your generous heart uh what's the best way people can just connect with you your website uh podcast the pretty intense podcast like what's the best way yeah um uh, all of those things, the pretty intense podcast. You can search my name and find that um, uh, Instagram, which is just Annika Patrick. Um, yeah. A website, there's Facebook, there's all kinds of things. So um, I think we have a TikTok. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't really, I really do all of the Instagram um, and most everything else is sort of like helped and handled, but, but I do all of that. And then I do all of the podcasts. I research every guest and Awesome. Lead the way and the best way I can. And so um, come across absolute gems like you and um, have really, really cool conversations that I always hope with everything that I do. I also make wine and I have candles and you can find all that stuff out on the, on my um, social page or on website, on my website. Um, but 
really at the at the core of all of it is to just to really help people um, wake up, sort of that question everything thing, wake up, and to really discover their how much power they have within them. Mm-hmm. I, there's nothing that brings me more like mm-hmm. humble, humble like gratitude to when I and like such joy when I see someone step into a new level of power within themselves Mm, and and knowing and confidence that I'm like, yes. And they might say, thank you for something I helped with. And I'm like, you did it. Like, Mm. I'm like, I'm just breadcrumbs, man. It's all you. And I love seeing that. So that's at the heart of it all. Thank you. Thank you for having you on. Uh, Folks, you heard it. Danica Patrick, uh, check out her podcast, Pretty Intense Podcast. We'll put everything in the show notes. Share this episode with everyone that you feel would enjoy. And we'll catch you in next week's episode of Soul Talk. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.